Speech Pathology Australia acknowledged the traditional custodians of the lands, seas and waters throughout Australia and pay respect to Elders past, present and future. We recognise that the health and social and emotional well-being of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples are grounded in continued connection to culture, country, language and community and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded. Hello and welcome to Speak Up, Speech Pathology Australia's podcast. Each week we showcase a conversation with inspiring and influential people who are advancing practice in one of the many and varied areas of speech pathology. Let's hear from this week's contributors. Hi and welcome to this week's Speak Up Conversation. My name is Kristen Potts. I'm a speech pathologist who works as a private practitioner working with children and young adults with complex communication needs. I have worked in the area of AAC for many years. There is something empowering in helping a child to communicate and watching their face when they realise they can successfully communicate what they want and need. Also, helping a parent to understand what their child is saying after years of communication breakdown and frustration is just so satisfying as a clinician. AAC has changed so much over the years, but I'm really excited that we are now at a point where we provide robust vocabulary systems to our clients for them to be able to communicate a variety of messages. Amanda Hartman is a speech pathologist with over 25 years experience. Amanda describes herself as a tech-loving speech pathologist and and an augmentative and alternative communication enthusiast. You might know Amanda from her work with assistive wear, working on implementation and training resources for their variety of apps, including proloquo to go Our Brisbane listeners might know her from her role at the University of Queensland, delivering lectures around AAC and keyword signing. Amanda also provides speech pathology services through her practice, Four Little Monkeys, in Brisbane, assisting the children and young adults she works with to be an independent and autonomous communicators. Hi, and welcome, Amanda. Hi, and thanks for having me. It's great to be here to talk all things AAC, my favourite thing. Mine too. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So Amanda, I know that you have worked a long time in the field of AAC. How have you seen it change over the years? It has changed quite a lot, actually, and but only for the better. I think that as an AAC community, we're in poised and ready to do all the right things. I think we're in a position now where we can support any person that has difficulties with communication with AAC. Um, I think in the early days, some of the things that really worried me, even as a really young therapist when I had no experience, I can remember thinking to myself, I've got these little choice boards with just PEX cards and I'm thinking, surely this kid wants to say more than I want to go to the toilet or I want something to eat or I, you know, surely this kid wants to tell me more than this. There's just not enough words and language here for for them. And so I think um, in the recent, and that was why, I, you know, systems that came around like pod books that had more language to them was something that really resonated with me early in my career. And then, yes, I think that probably in the last, I don't know, I couldn't put a time limit in it, but we're now getting 
AAC tools that have more words and more language in them that allows kids to kids or people anybody to be able to say um, I guess my big theory is always to say we want to have enough words in an AAC tool that they can say anything to anyone anywhere anytime and that's that autonomous communication independent thing yeah so I think we're at a at a point now where we have the tools um, we have good AAC tools that we know have the words and the language in them and so now it's up for us us as the profession to really look at how do we support the implementation of these tools? How do we get teams on board and, um, you know, get, you know, empower the AAC users to use these tools, I guess? Yeah, I agree. That's, that's probably our next challenge as a, as a profession. I agree with that. Yeah, yeah. Well, Amanda, I thought the best way to tap into your amazing expertise today would be to explore AAC through hypothetical case studies across the lifespan that may be similar to clients that our listeners have come across in their in their clinic rooms. I'm sure your practical strategies that we chat about today will assist so many clinicians in their everyday work. All right, so let's start at the beginning of the lifespan. So the first case study is an 18-month-old with a diagnosis of cerebral palsy. He has limited functional use of his hands and uses his eyes to request informally by looking at objects in his environment and then back at his communication partner. Some core words, such as more or help or finish, represented by symbols, have been introduced in a low-tech eye gaze board. So what are the first things that go through your mind in your cl clinical decision-making if this child came into your clinical in clinic room? I think um, any time we are looking to support someone with a complex body, Probably the first port of call for me anyway is to always work on getting a consistent yes-no with their body. Remember, um, working on yes-no is as an early developmental concept. At this stage, we want to use yes and no to learn how to accept something and to refuse something. We're not using yes and no to test, is this an elephant or anything like that? Um, we're actually just trying to teach the concepts of accepting and rejecting, basically. So we want to teach yes-no. If they can do it with their body or some sort of way that any person that learning yes no is going to be a skill for a lifetime for a person with a complex body but the other big thing that I want to start early early on for a person um, with a complex body whatever age is the concept of partner assisted scanning because if they can do I mean of course we're going to be looking at um, access methods for technology um, you know whether it's eye gaze or switches or whatever but at the very instance every single person with a complex body needs to know how to do partner assisted scanning and for people that haven't heard of that concept partner assisted scanning basically means that you and Typically, we can relate it to an AAC tool, but we can actually partner-assisted scan anything. It just means that you have a smart partner who scans through a array of choices and you say yes when you hear the one that you want and you say no when, you, when it's not the one you want. And this skill really early on means that a young person who at the moment doesn't have functional hand use has some eye gaze and we're still going to be working on his access towards perhaps a high-tech AAC, right now what he needs right now is functional communication and this gives him access to more words early as early as possible so that you know you can be partner assisted scanning through a row of choices or a row of feeling words or a row of um or you can partner assisted scan anything yeah so so if the, if the child learns to say um you know so oh what do you want to do today and the mum just you know and again of course 
we're going to be talking about this throughout the course of the day is about how we bring in our communication partners, so the team around the, the AAC user and how we support them. So working with the parents, you know, the, so teach the mum to go, oh, what are we going to do today? Are we going to go to the park, swimming, um, or go for a ride on our bikes or something different? Hmm, those are our choices. Let me say them again. And you tell me yes or no, yes, when you hear the one you want. Like even if they can do a yes but not a no at beginning. So then the mum reads them again. So are we going to go to the park? Wait, wait, wait. Oh, you didn't say anything. I think you're telling me no. Do you want to go swimming? Wait, wait. Oh, I saw you dropped your chin. Are you trying to say yes? You're saying yes, let's go swimming. So, you know, if we can get those skills really early to be able to listen to to choices and do partner-assisted scanning, that leads itself into, um, you know, alternative access um, scanning pods, you know, partner-supported scanning pods. And, um, and of course, we've got the whole tech that we'll go to and we, we can start that soon too. But I think those are my initial thoughts. Yeah, I think I think I uh, agree with you with that, and I, I think auditory visual scanning, partner assisted scanning, is is underutilized a lot in our um, mm-hmm. in the AAC. We like to think about um, go go straight to tech, and we like to think about that. So I think that's a really good idea to start there. We are going to do tech, but even if in five years from now this young man has learnt uh, an eye gaze or to use a switch he still is going to be able to day-to-day be able to use partner-assisted scanning of perhaps a a printed symbol book or printed cards or just on fingers, you know. So I think think it's a skill that's a lifelong skill that can really work favourably. And also the other thing about it, and, and it comes back to that we don't limit how many words he has access to. As soon as a kid can partner-assisted scan rows of words, then, you know, he's not just saying that it's good or it's bad. Okay, well, do you want to say that it was excellent, fantastic, wonderful or great? You can automatically start that extra vocabulary and those extra exciting words that actually makes communication fun. So, you know, like we limit Anytime we're doing anything in our AAC that limits vocabulary and, and or restricts their access to lots of words, that's when I start to go, no, we need to do things differently. And in terms of um, language development considerations for supporting mm. people with AAC, what language, what language development considerations would you think about with this little one? So I think I think typically in AAC, and I, and I guess sometimes it's an historical thing, or you've you know you, ha, you you know when we know better, we can do better. That sort of concept. But I think historically we sort of thought, oh, we've got to get them making choices, or um, and then at some point we we as speech pathologists think our measure of success is how many symbols they put together. So we're like we move from this concept of choice making but then we want to see how many words they can put in a sentence so you're not just doing I want the block anymore now we want them to say the little red block like we're trying to get them to build length whereas I think if we think more holistically about the young person their language skills one of the things that I like to do is look at their communication functions so more the pragmatic basis of things so do they have a way to make a choice do they have a way to ask for help do they have a way to tell a story do they have a way because as soon as we think about that diversity of language like all the reasons in the world that we communicate for right once is that automatically points to language choices that we can offer 
whatsoever to any person. And, and we probably have more examples of that as we talk about other cases. But I think from a language perspective, we just need to broaden our idea about how we can develop language for the learners and it starts with having the right tool of course like having an, an, an AAC tool that we select that has enough words and words that be, can be combined for lots of different reasons um, in lots of different ways to communicate different for different reasons um, but yeah I think I think that's what I think for a young person would be interacting with their team with his team his parents okay so he's got a way to make a choice what other things do you need him to do oh communicate about his comfort levels his pain levels communicate about his body how it feels you know like the parents will know what's important contextually in their environment that that this young man needs to be able to communicate to the people around him and we we use those as pointers for the language that we would um um, teach and model. So my second case study is um, a five-year-old girl with a diagnosis of childhood apraxia of speech. Her speech is highly unintelligible to both familiar and unfamiliar listeners with frequent communication breakdown experience. When communication breakdown occurs, she's beginning to show signs of frustration. She's due to start school next year. So this is probably um, most clinicians would come across um, a client that might fit into this this category. So where does your sure. clinical decision making take you with this case? I think um, the starting point is probably getting the team around on board. Like, I mean, I know that it's a, a well-known thing for us as speech pathologists to know that using AAC is not going to affect speech development, but you have to really have the, power, the parents on board with this because they may still think that AAC will stop their young daughter from learning to speak or to speak more. So you really want to have a parent that's really invested in the concept that AAC can be something that can... Um, help and not hinder or, or stop speech development. So I think getting that rapport with the parents and also that the, how that happens is probably parents see by um, start to understand it by seeing you do it. So in my instance, I would just start using AAC with a young person. I wouldn't be caught up on what the tool is just yet. I would just be testing and trying a few different AAC tools with the young person and I would be you know, talking with the parents about how that looks and, and how that made a difference and and because we really want to win them over because we know, and in all of our cases, we know that AAC only happens with a supportive team around. And so I think having the parents, you know, on board with it and, of course, because we're now going to be moving into a new school environment, we need to have the parents to help us transition into that school life because we'll also need the team uh, at the school level and peers to be on board as well. So I think that 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 building of the relationship should be, and I mean, this in all cases, of course, for us as speech pathologists, if we take a family-centred practice approach to our thing, um, that we're, we're building our relationships with families so that we can um, work with them for what works best with their family and empowering parents so that they know what AAC is and they know what it means and what it doesn't mean and there's, so that we can eliminate that fear for them because any parent who starts an AAC, they will tell you, every day of the week that it's overwhelming and they feel alone and it doesn't feel right and it doesn't feel natural. So, you know, like working with the parents at that get-go I think is important. Um, so, again, if we come back to the AAC tool, I think in this case we're probably more looking at, do you think, I mean, I don't know for you, Kristen, but 
I think about more just making a start at a variety of a few ASC tools and over to, like you test and trial things within a therapy context in the home. You get the parents to trial a few things before you make a, some sort of decision about what AAC that you would choose. Is that yeah. your... Um, yeah, definitely. So, yeah, I definitely trial a few different um, options, would trial a few different options and try and find what's right for the family as well as the child. So if a family is really over, like, overwhelmed by a system such as LAMP, then, you know, we might think about trialling something different because I want the family, as just as you said, to be using that with mm. them. Um, so if I've, I want them to be on board and I want them to be able to use it and feel like they'll be good, you know, be able to model the system and, and use it across the day and not um, yeah. put it in the corner and go, it's too hard. That's yeah, we don't, we don't want the parents doing it's too hard. Yeah. But we do. I mean, it, it just comes with working together with the family, I think. And, um, I, and it was always the way that success breed success once they see their young person experiencing success with it and they have those few few small wins you can get that roll-on effect that I think is those really like wow moments that parents start getting excited about the opportunities or um the you know lots of times you'll hear oh they were trying to tell me something and I didn't understand what they were saying and they ran and they got the IAC and for the first time they were able to find the words to to tell you something and those wins are the things that that have that validate for the parents okay we are doing the right thing here we've got to keep going with this Even and I think years, those moments still make me cry to be honest I mean of course yeah so no they're special moments yeah yeah I think also from a language perspective maybe at this point we want to also look at what her receptive language level is like not without having to do like uh, you know, standardised testing. But if we know that at, at the age of five she has quite a high-level receptive language, which is sometimes what we see with a person who has, you know, that apraxia of speech but their comprehension is quite good, then you know that, well, you know, just starting an AAC tool that only has, like, limited words on it is not going to meet what her underlying comprehension is so we want to start with a system like we're going to say all the time with lots of words as many words even if it feels overwhelming at first for the family you need to win them over that um you know that the more words the better you can't we can't model and give her more language and build her concept knowledge and her sentence knowledge if in sentence building if she doesn't have enough words to be able to combine together so that's some of those things that you'll be uh, you'll be thinking about and conversations you'll be having with parents as you're testing as you're trying out different AAC and I do agree with you what you said before like we are the professionals and you know we want to recommend what we think is best but ultimately the, it's going to be the parents working with their child day to day so it has to it has to I mean it's not about them <laughs> But, but we want them, you know, it is about the child and what the child needs, but we also need the parents on side 100%. So we want them to be invested in and feel like that they were part of the decision-making process and that we, speech pathologists traditionally have been the gatekeepers to AAC, wouldn't we say? Like forever you couldn't get through to AAC only through us and us writing a support letter for it. Whereas, you know, the with now that we have iPads and apps that you can download at a relatively good price it's almost like there's this democracy around AAC now where people can make their own choice about what their AAC is and because somebody on Facebook said that this app was good they're going to go ahead and download it in the sales now that has limitations to it but I think it's seen that we've seen um, parents making more decisions about the AAC which can only be a good thing and for us as professionals to just meet those families where they're at and um, maybe they get AAC earlier 
I don't know. Anyway, all the things we talk about. <laughs> yeah. I, um, well, you know, I think that uh, when we're, it's really important for the child entering school that she can use her device to advocate for herself. So how do you oh, see yeah. advocacy being considered um, in her um, selection or um yeah. yeah. Do you know, even even though she's only five, um, one of my AAC user friends, um, I always quote them, um, they said, uh, no AAC user is too young, too old, too powerless, too disabled to be able to self-advocate. And, that, and that's something that just rings in my head now where I think, okay, so the concept of being able to speak up for yourself needs to start as early as possible. And for a younger person, it's simple things like asking people to stop or telling people when they don't want to do something, you know, like if they're in a place where they're being asked to do something that they don't want to do or anything like that, that, you know, any other child of their age has the ability to say, no, I don't want to do that. But when they're non-speaking, <laughs> Do the, can they? Do they have the words and the language for that? So I think my perspective, it's that just a person is never too young to start working on early advocacy. And particularly for her, if she's not being able to be understood by her peers, like, and there's that communication breakdown, you know, we might need to start thinking about things like, oh, um, you know, please wait, I'm trying to find the word, I need more time, um, you know, you know, just those that she learns to go, well, I'm trying to tell you something. Oh, no, it's not about that, you know. No, that's not what I'm trying to tell you. So that she has some of those phrases that help that communication break down so that, that, that she can get back on the same page with peers and teachers, um, you know, in that. Because that long-term communication breakdown can really affect a child's social-emotional development as well, or the longer that they go not being understood. Yeah, that's it, you know. Yeah. I think that's a brilliant Sorry. idea. I'm I'm actually going to take that to all my kids today and put them in their devices. <laughs> yeah. The, um, oh, look, we need advocacy phrases, but do, yeah. here's my here's my thing about advocacy phrases. Don't assume that we know the right phrase. Make sure that you decide as a team what are the words that would suit this young person um, best. I had a conversation with an adult AAC user recently, and um, we were talking about. I don't know if you realise, but the, the biggest challenge for AAC users continues to be the behaviour of speaking people because we don't give them enough time, we talk over top of them, we dominate conversations, all of those things that we know has always been. And so this is an adult AAC user who you would say, oh, you know what, they are actually quite a... Um, fluent AAC user, they use the AAC well, but they still get really frustrated when people don't allow them to have time. And so they had two buttons, a polite version and a not so polite version of like, please wait while I write my message, shut up and let me speak, <laughs> you know, like, and I just thought, you know, that's, that was, that's their choice as to how those, how the, the, the phrase sounds to them. Um, of course, a child who's five is not going to have a phrase that says shut up, but, you know, maybe as a young, <laughs> many Anyway, yeah, so I think advocacy is a really important thing. And the earlier the, we all, the earlier that we work on it and that we teach teams that if they say stop, we have to honour that. We have to say, you know what, they just spoke up for themselves and said that they want you to stop doing that just because they're non-speaking. You have to listen to it. Yeah. So. Yeah. I, no, I really like the phrase, I need more time um, to get my message across. And, uh, yeah, yeah, as I said, I'm going to go and add that to a few of my kids. Um, device. Very important. Yeah, Even very if you just have 
please wait, you know, or just wait, you know, please wait. It doesn't have to be a complicated thing. Like weight is often on We do. So, um, but we use weight in a way to save the child, hey, you need to wait for something. Like more of a step. And I think teaching it explicitly (laughs) is is, is really important. And I'm I'm, uh, really glad that we spoke about that. Good. (laughs) We all want to add extra tips and tricks to our toolbox. So that's good. Yeah. I love it so much. All right, let's move on to our next case. So this Mm -hmm. one is a 12-year-old autistic boy who is non-speaking and exhibits frequent behaviours of concerns to his educators and carers. He attends a special school setting and is currently living in out-of-home care. He has access to low-tech communication aids, including a core vocabulary book, which he accesses directly. He can request highly motivating things, but he's yet not yet using other communication functions. And this is because we talked about this a little bit before. Yeah. Um, he is beginning to join some cells together to request, so like, I want toast. So what are your thoughts about um, this young man? I I would be looking at, like, once you're at 12 and you're thinking that you don't already have an AAC system, I w- my immediate instinct is to look at what have been the barriers to it so far. And the not to, again, this is just a case study, but if there is out-of-home support, I would suggest that perhaps AAC has been a difficult or overwhelming thing for the family to adopt. So that, that, that at some point in time they haven't been able to engage it or they haven't had a professional that supported them really well to engage with AAC in the home context because I think if you get to 12 and you're non-speaking and you don't already have your own personal AAC system. I mean, this is some of the flaws in our in our system in in the way that AAC is supplied and provided. I'd also be looking really closely with the school team. I'd be on the ground in the school, um, and I'd be looking for if we're talking about going. Okay, this young man needs his own personal AAC. If that was our first port of call, um, I would be looking at what systems already exist in the school that the that the teachers are familiar with, and that they're happy to start modelling and using with him. So if there's a, um, you know, if, uh, look, Australia, tr- uh, honestly, Australian schools. I am very proud. Like I, I go internationally to lots of schools, and I think Australian schools are really trailblazing a lot of the AAC stuff that they're doing. So we've got lots of whole school approaches to AAC where teachers are using AAC embedded in their practice and so I would want to go into that school and see what AAC tools are already available because if it even if even if it's been in passing he may have seen somebody using an iPad app with an AAC tool on it or a pod book you know th- those things are in our schools at the special he's in a special school setting particularly so he may have had some exposure to that but no one ever really targeted it with him so we want to re-engage parents for starters or and if not parents or the his support team which is one of our first barriers i think you would agree um but then also i would look at how aac has been used in the past because i would i would be challenging that yes he's highly motivated to use the aac for the things that are meaningful for him but then probably the other times that AAC is used out, particularly in an educational context, is for the teacher to boss him around and tell him to wait and to stop or to test what he knows so that he can compl- she can complete her assessment checklist. These are just the realities of teachers and classrooms 
you know, balancing curriculum demands. It's not a problem of individual teachers. It's just part of the, the system. And so the only time the AAC has come out is for bossing around and work. And so AAC has never been this thing that was used for connection and communication and interaction and fun stuff. And so I sort of, my challenge in these situations is really getting in, figuring out what motivates what floats the boat of this young man and I presume like he'll have some preferred thing whether and you want to tap into their preferred activities tap into their preferred um you know their personal focuses of the things that they love so if he he you know maybe he's I've got I've got some older people that still love Thomas the Tank Engine. If that's the door that I get in to introduce more language, because now we're finding photos of Thomas and we're writing sentences to describe what's happening and we're telling stories from videos we've watched, I, you've just got to find that thing that really um, hooks in that child into AAC and to get them to see that AAC is not just work, but it actually can be fun and motivating and engaging. And that idea that a person with autism isn't looking for that social interaction is another one of those things that we, a myth that we have to dispel. They just want to look for that engagement in a slightly different way. And we have to become really careful observers and figure out what that is. Um, so there's a, a lot of things, obviously, to unpack in that, but um, those would be my starting points. <laughs> you know, lot, what another know. area that I often hear in the in similar um, cases and also from working in special schools myself, when they've got behaviours of concern and the teachers will say, he'll just throw it, like he might, the teacher might say, he'll just throw that device and he'll hurt someone. Or he'll throw the communication book and he'll hurt so, so he can't have one. So I find that's often a barrier. Have you come across that and, and how have you? Oh, um, yeah, for sure. And how oh, have definitely. you that with the, the support staff around the child? I think that any time I hear a parent or an educator say, I can't do it because it just means that they haven't been creative enough to try and that probably they also, there's probably part of them underlying that thinks that this young man isn't capable of more than what he is. And so we've got to challenge their beliefs about what he's capable of. And then, but we also have to just be um, smarter. If it means that the device needs to be mounted onto the desk with the screw that he can't get off, then we just take away that barrier. If the barrier is picking up the iPad and throwing it, just that we, we, you can get mounts that will screw onto a desk and that iPad is not going anywhere. And I'm telling you, you know, I mean, and it's really just breaking the cycle. It's also going to come down to, well, of course he doesn't want to use the iPad because you're not trying to engage him with things that he likes. You're just trying to boss him around or make him do work. So if somebody just tried to use that thing to do that with me, I might want to throw it to them as well. So if we actually unpack the statement of when it's happening and why it's happening so we can break some habits by looking at physically you know, making sure that our devices are secure, of course, but if we actually unpack that with the, the teacher as to... Um, in what instances that's happening, then I think we can start problem solving some things. A big factor here is also that we want to start gathering some good positive examples of AAC. So if, say, for example, you've taken this young man on into your caseload and you've had some really nice therapy sessions where you've caught some good moments where you've engaged, interacted and is engaged, we need to start getting videos of those sorts of things. So because 
um, videos make believers of people, you know, like these are people that historically have thought this young man is not capable of X, Y, or Z. And so now we want to challenge those preconceived notions of this young man and that the behaviour that we're seeing is probably just a direct reflection of frustration at not being have, able to say the things they want to say. So if we can, you know, if we can really, you know, start sharing success stories and start, start, even if it's anecdotal or video or photos or anything, this helps change people's perceptions of what's possible. So yeah, I love that. So that's much. A, a good thing. Yeah. Um, would there be any additional things around advocacy that you would think for a child of this age or pretty we covered it. I do I do actually think that for for an older person that hasn't engaged in AAC it is probably at some point um they haven't got the words for the things that they want to say so maybe um maybe they do need a a help folder that says I don't want to do this work and by them having the word to say I don't want to do this work that will stop them picking up the book and throwing it you know like some of those if you were if you actually did a behavior analysis of what was causing some of the behaviors maybe we can identify the communication breakdown and then we can provide them with some phrases on the AAC that helps them to communicate you're too close to me step off um you know I need I need a break now. Like all of those, those are advocacy phrases that helps them communicate through some of perhaps, but they probably just don't have the language or the words, and so they're going to keep going back to the behaviour because that gets the fastest result. And so, trying to shape advocacy in this um, in these kinds of cases is like super important, as well as trying to find the fun, engaging stuff as well. And again, it's about giving them more words to communicate for different things and so moving helping them to realize they can use their AAC for more than just I want you know which is typically where their language has stalled at so and that will only come by seeing others using language with them in other in other ways and for different reasons so yeah, um, yeah. I love it awesome all right, so to our final age bracket, and I want to preface this case by saying that Nina, Amanda and I work directly with um, adults who have an acquired um, brain injury, but I think that we can apply some of our general AAC principles um, to lots of different presentations of, of our clients. So let's talk about a 50-year-old male who lives at home with his wife and adult children and is employed as a car mechanic. He is passionate about cars and enjoys his work. He is six months post a left MCA stroke and presents with severe apraxia of speech and mild to moderate receptive and expressive aphasia. I I actually, yeah, as we said, I haven't worked with adults. I, I actually, I have friendships with adults who've lost their speech from an acquired disorder. So my perspective probably comes from that. Um, I was lucky enough to be part of a research project where we interviewed adults that, um, adults with developmental disabilities or um, with acquired disorders who'd lost their speech. And so that, that insight that we learn from listening to AAC users is something that every single speech pathologist needs to engage with because learning from their lived experience is really very powerful for us. So probably my my thoughts about this um, gentleman come from that 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 place. I and I think it's a really good conversation for us as a profession because I think um, from what I hear from conversations is that AAC might be 
um, offered in the hospital in that really acute setting, like when they've lost their speech, particularly just right at the moment of the stroke. But then it's not ever discussed as a long-term communication solution for that person moving forward in their life. And I think that's, to me, it's it's a missed opportunity. And I think for us as professionals, as even though we're speech pathologists, just because we decide to up uptake or use AAC as one of our tools it doesn't mean that we're giving up on that speech you know it doesn't mean it's not like it's a choice we're not having to choose AAC or speech in any of these cases actually you know Um, because um, I think it's all about communication in all of its various forms and I can imagine this um, man He's probably got lots of different ways he communicates that, you know, that he's learning to communicate in new ways. He's obviously got some speech still that might not be understood by some people, but maybe he is using gestures and body language and, you know, all of those things that that's all good too. But maybe, you know, we, we can look at doing AAC for communicating those more deeper thoughts. Um, there's a lot of research around uh, people who have like acquired disorders how they lose their social role uh, when they're not able to communicate as to the full extent that they once were that they feel like they're no longer that car enthusiast they're no longer that father that could give advice to their daughters and because they can't communicate to that deep level that they once did when they had speech and so to me I go bing AAC (laughs) you know isn't AAC going to be the way that we can um give them a way to communicate those deep thoughts now even if post-acquired they've perhaps lost literacy skills we don't know what you know so he may not be able to type to communicate but together with his team they might be able to use an AAC tool or even um what about a, a an app that has photographs with text that's read aloud you know it doesn't have to be AAC which of course these are all good tools that we can have but there's a photo and the story is read aloud from it so that he can share his knowledge of of cars or he can share his fatherly advice however it looks it doesn't it doesn't really matter it's just that concept that we want a person who's lost their speech as an adult to be able to still fulfill their social roles in life and talk about the things that are meaningful and, and meaningful to them still at a deep level. Yeah. Those are my, thirst, my ideas. I, no, I love it. I love it. I think that's, all, that's great. And I think that challenging um, our colleagues who work in this area to think outside the square and outside the box is, is, is a good thing. Um, yeah and I know that in aphasia therapy they do talk a lot about visuals you know picture books and maps and lists and you know photo albums using that sort of stuff to help prompt and communication so AAC just really takes that the next level because it has the speak out loud voice with it that that helps that that person to have the words that they want said aloud to the person rather than it you know just be a low-tech visual kind of thing if that makes sense so I think that some of the and that and that's where I think there's there's strategies across the profession that um, we can all we can all learn from you know like um, our five-year-old so say for example the 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 man with aphasia his family make him a book with all his favorite car pictures and that, that helps him with his aphasia to talk about cars uh, let's backtrack let's make a photo book for the five-year-old so that she, she's got all of her favorite things so she can take to school so I think we can learn across our profession of those strategies that we know are always going to be about good connection and communication. And I think that, uh, yeah, that's what it's all about really. And I just really loved as well when you spoke about 
um, using all modes of, of communicating. And doesn't we when we do AAC, it doesn't mean we, we're forgetting about speech or if we're focusing on speech, we're not forgetting about AAC. It's, it's a whole... No. Um, it's a whole yeah. path almost for the, for the person and to, to enhance yeah. their experiences and, and connections. So important. One of my one of my AAC user friends said to me that um, AAC is what's universal. It's speech that is only for some. And I, I like that concept because, in fact, every single one of us, we use AAC when we send a message or an emoji or show a photo to our friends or send an email or gesture or fa- use our facial expression. Those are all forms of AAC. The, the problem is, is that speech is only for some, but AAC is what's universal. So I, I, I just like to think of that in context, you know, that actually actually we're all AAC users, but of course we can always speak and speaking will be faster and easier for us. But if we want to level the playing fields between um, AAC users, you know, it could be that instead of face-to-face, you know, we need to work with our AAC users not just on their face-to-face to communication, but we need to give them ways that they can communicate asynchronously you know so a goal for an older person using AAC is not just that they can talk to me in speech therapy but they can send a text message to their dad um, to tell him about what they want to do on the weekend you know those asynchronous forms where the message happens across time and space if that makes sense you know like we're not in the same moment together so I think I think those should be things that we as speech pathologists are thinking about as as language and advocacy goals for older people, like when it's never too soon to teach them how to send a text message or to write an email to somebody or any of those things. And a lot of the AAC apps have sharing capabilities so that they can write in their AAC and share it within the app in a text message or an email. And I think, I think you know, it's just thinking about that bigger, broader picture about all the different ways we communicate and how we can support um, AAC users to be the best communicator and develop their friendships and relationships and all those things. Thank you so much for all your clinical insights today, Amanda. It has been beyond fantastic exploring these cases with you. I can't thank you enough for taking the time to chat today. To everyone listening, if you'd like to hear more from Amanda, and let's be honest, who wouldn't, look out for her upcoming Speech Pathology Australia professional learning called Build Build Communication with AAC in October and November. Keep an eye out on the Speech Pathology Australia Learning Hub for details. Thank you for listening in and be sure to tune in to another Speak Up conversation next Wednesday. Thanks again, Amanda. Thanks so much. We hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast where all good podcasts are found and make sure you share it with your colleagues. You can also visit us at speechpathologyaustralia.org.au. Thanks for tuning in and bye for now.